0: so much, Owen, appreciate that. Um, yeah, so uh, apart from having fun with Tom Moffat, who is just planting a church in Durban, I'm going to actually have to put my Do Not Disturb on, because I'm getting different messages coming in here. <laughs> People know I'm preaching uh, this today, and so from Cape Town and other places I'm getting these wonderful messages. So I thought what I would do, because Owen said that you're about to go into a series on the Holy Spirit, and his gifts and so I thought I would do and I I said what about if I did a kind of a general introduction to the work of the Holy Spirit in the local church and so that's what I'm going to do. So the title I've got and I don't have slides because I've basically got one point which is you'll find out what the point is. (laughs) The message I've called The Church and the Holy Spirit Um, But if you've got a Bible, turn with me to 1 Corinthians in chapter 12, because I want to ask the question, what did the church look like? What did the church look like in the New Testament? And in, in the letter to Corinthians, Paul is definitely responding to requests he's received for advice on a number of topics, you know, normally... In Paul's letters, or sometimes they're called the epistles, it's just an old-fashioned word for letters. In Paul's letters, he usually outlines, you know, who Christ is, what Christ has done for you, and then how then we should live in response to who Christ is and what Christ has done for us. What we have here in, in uh, Corinthians is a, is a different thing. He's moving from topic to topic. And so it actually gives us a really interesting glimpse into the early life of the church, or the the life of the early church. What church life was like, what happened when the churches met together. And so from chapter 11 to chapter 15 of 1 Corinthians, he discusses what actually happens when the church gathers together, when it meets for public worship. So we get to see what church was like. We get to visit, if you like, on a Sunday. And not just any church, but a church that was specifically planted by Paul. So this is a Paul church plant. And was overseen by Paul as well. Now it is one particular church, but it's very clear from this and from his other letters to other churches, that in terms of what actually took place in their meetings, he is dealing with common features. Common features, or as he himself calls them, traditions. So, 1 Corinthians 11, verse 2, before he gets into the kind of what happens in the public meetings, he says this, I praise you because you remember me in everything and hold fast to the traditions, just as I delivered them to you. Now, I remember as a new convert, I was converted in my 20s. When I first saw saw the word traditions, I felt slightly nervous because traditional church was one of the things that put me off Christianity in the first place. The traditions of the institutional church were not attractive to me at all, the ornate gold-covered crosses, the strange robes, the stand-up, sit-down, the mumbled liturgy, the dust and shadows of the cold buildings, all of that seemed to me a remnant of an ornamental faith of the the past. Um, But, of course, uh, after my conversion, even though I, I thought maybe in the olden days people found something inside all of that... But even after my conversion, I was concerned by this word when I encountered it in 1 Corinthians 11, traditions. You remembered the traditions. You're still following through with the traditions just as I taught them to you. And I was nervous of that word because I thought, okay, that could be misinterpreted. But of course, when I got to know chapters 11 to 14, if you've got a physical Bible, you can flick through and see. And I saw what were the traditions that Paul was actually talking about, which he outlines in those chapters, I felt much better. I felt so much better. That portion of Scripture is mainly about the continued power and gifts of the Holy Spirit operating in the local church. And of course, I trust this is true for you, I'm sure it is, we want to follow Scripture. We want to follow Scripture. We want to be shaped by the Bible. that That's our guide for what we believe and what we practice. And, and so this local church example, with Paul's advice and his corrections, we'll see that in a little bit, is a glimpse into orthodox, primitive Christianity. That's what he's describing in these chapters. That's what we're looking at. He begins chapter 11, as I say, by praising them for holding to the traditions as he had Both modeled them and taught them. Imitate me as I also imitate Christ. Now I praise you because you remember me and everything and hold fast to the traditions just as I delivered them to you. Traditions, of course, are not merely precepts. He's not just talking about the teaching about Jesus. Traditions aren't just precepts but are practices as well. You know that. Of course they are. You know what a tradition is. Tradition includes belief but of course it also is uh, including what actually happens. And so Paul's describing what happens in church. The Greek word he uses is the same in Mark 7, where the Pharisees that uh, see that Jesus' disciples don't practice traditional hand-washing before eating, and they say, why don't your disciples live according to the traditions? So it's not just precepts, it's practices, the traditions of the elders. T.S. says, Put it like this, tradition is not solely or even primarily the maintenance of certain dogmatic beliefs. These beliefs have come to take their living form in the course of the formation of a tradition. What I mean by tradition involves all those habitual actions, habits and customs from the most significant religious rite to our conventional way of greeting a stranger. Traditions. The traditions as Paul modeled them and instructed them to imitate are the practices common to the early church. certainly included his teaching, but it was also evident in their practices when they gathered together. So what follows are the traditions of the Christian church as planted and led by the Apostle Paul. Am I laboring this point enough for you to know that? What we are are going to see are the traditions. Uh, And so, of course, that was normal for Paul. What he's describing... Now, he does make some corrections, but what he's describing is normal church life. A church planted by Paul, a church apostolically overseen by Paul, as well as having apostolic visits from Apollos, he mentions earlier in the the letter, and Cephas, or Peter, as well. So they had also been building on the foundation that Paul had actually laid in this church. And what we're about to read... Is normal. He commends them for continuing in these traditions. He outlines in chapter 11, because it's 11 to the end of 14, uh, how men and women come together in worship, conscious in terms of what would be honorable or fitting in their cultural context. As they eat meals together, they break bread and they fellowship and then so church wasn't just going to a a meeting here there seems to be meals and breaking of bread and kind of what the Methodists called, called the love feasts where there was a sharing of food together and they were making some mistakes on that as well from chapter 12 to chapter 14 he's discussing the dynamic aspect of their experience of the power of the Holy Spirit normal in church life and he advises them about what I'm calling the supernatural gifts. You know what I mean by that. There are gifts that are kind of apparently less supernatural, administration, mercy, hospitality, and so on. But he discusses these supernatural gifts specifically because he's talking about the public meeting of the local church. There are gifts mentioned in other places. I'm sure you'll deal with them in your series as well, administration, as I say, hospitality, mercy. But when it comes to the meetings of the church, He's emphasizing and promoting particular gifts. And that's an important point. Because even though the Corinthian church were clearly going over the top, in certain respects, Paul very definitely affirms these gifts. Now, he provides some boundaries for their use as he strongly encourages their continuation and he reminds them as well. He drops 1 Corinthians 13 into the middle of the argument in terms of how these gifts should be used and the respect which we should have for one another and the love that should be evident in the use of these gifts. We, therefore, should be careful not to water things down, not to try to de the New Testament I think we've, we're coming in at the tail end of a lot of effort to de to take the charismatic out of the New Testament. Martin Luther said, let God be God. I, mean, I, I think that's helpful. Let God be God. Who are we to try and adjust how God wants to work in the life of his church. And so as believers, we ought to allow the Word of God and the Spirit of God to teach us. So with that, all of that in mind, let's read these verses. Um, but keep in mind, I'm giving a broad introduction to the work of the Spirit, so I'm not going to go into these verses in particular detail. But let's read them so you get the idea of what we're talking about, particularly if you're not familiar with the letter itself. So, uh, picking up from verse 1 in 1 Corinthians chapter 12. Now, concerning spiritual gifts, brothers and sisters, I think this is the New American Standard. I didn't write it down. Sorry for that. Now, concerning spiritual gifts, brothers and sisters, I do not want you to be unaware. You know that when you were pagans, you were led astray to the mute idols, however you were led. So you used to worship, but you worshipped idols that didn't speak contrast, God is a God who speaks. That's what we are looking at, how God speaks. So he's saying, You were led astray to the mute idols, however you led. Therefore I make known to you that no one speaking by the Spirit of God says Jesus is accursed. And no one can say Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. I mean, obviously say it and mean it. Now, there are varieties of gifts, but the same Spirit. There are varieties of ministries and the same Lord. There are varieties of effects, but the same God who works all things in all persons. You pick up a Trinitarian, there's, a, there's an element of three coming in there. But, interesting, varieties of ministries, varieties of effects, there are effects of the Holy Spirit as well, varieties uh, of gifts. So 4, 5, and 6. Verse 7. But to each one is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. So that's what they're for. They're for the common good. For to one is given the word of wisdom through the Spirit. To another, the word of knowledge according to the same Spirit. To another, faith by the same Spirit. To another, gifts of healing, hallelujah, by the one Spirit. To another, the effecting of miracles. Be good to see more of that. To another, the uh, prophecy. To another, the distinguishing of spirits. To another, various kinds of tongues. And to another, the interpretation of tongues. But one and the same spirit works all these things, distributing to each one individually just as he wills. And I suppose this is my one point. Headline. The Corinthian challenge versus our challenge. Paul is responding, as I say, to a number of concerns, one of which was about the exercise of spiritual gifts in the church meetings, the public meetings of the church. They were still operating in the gifts enthusiastically, as he had modelled to them, as we read through the book of Acts, but they were perhaps tilting into overuse. As you read through these chapters, 12 to 14... It sounds almost as though (laughs) there were parts of the meeting where nothing was said in the local language at all. In other words, one after another would get up and speak in tongues at length without interpretation. And Paul puts a boundary. He doesn't forbid that, but he puts a boundary on it. He says, you can have three. Three times that can happen. And no more. And that's worth noting. He's not killing the thing. He's just saying, okay, I don't know why he says three, but he just says two at the most three. Many people, obviously, in the congregation were enjoying the ecstatic nature of all of this. And of course you would if you've been filled with the Holy Spirit. But in terms of intelligible content, not much was being communicated. People were being healed, miracles were happening, there was teaching happening too, but it was all so in-house that it would be difficult for new people or outsiders to receive it. So he says, two public tongue-speaking moments, maybe three at the most, but with interpretation. He's being very careful not to rubbish or downgrade the gifts. He's not doing that. He's not downgrading the power of the Holy Spirit, the experience, the dynamic experience of the Spirit. He's not squashing anyone's faith, but he is guiding them in how to use these gifts for the benefit of most people. Now, it's difficult to understand how some Bible teachers can read Paul and conclude that he's shutting it all down. It's very obvious that he is not shutting it all down. He's not shutting it all down for the sake of the non-believer or for the outsider, and he's not shutting it all down because it's not the kind of church that he wants to build. It's exactly the church that he's planted. It's exactly the church that's continuing on with the traditions as he modeled them and taught them. It's exactly the kind of church that he wants to see, but he's putting some boundaries in. That's absolutely obvious. How can people look at these chapters and say, well, it must have been so wild. Let's stay as far away from that stuff as possible. It's not for the church today. That is not what Paul is saying. And he's also not saying, let's just, I've got, the solution is, let's take this out of the main meeting, out of the public meeting, and move it into like a back room somewhere where no one can see. He's not saying that. Uh, Do you want the Bible? Do Do you want Paul and Paul's teaching for how to... He was a wise master builder. Do you want to listen to the Apostle Paul or do you want something else? So I want to urge you. I know you've been going for a few years now. But it still does feel, doesn't it? We're still in the planting phase. It still feels like we're in the planting phase. So I want to urge you to take a clear position in favor of the overtly supernatural aspects of the Christian faith. That God does indeed answer prayer. That he does actually want to heal people. That he does still give good gifts to his children. If you ask for an egg... He's not going to give you a stone. Orthodox Christian faith, after all, acknowledges the existence of God as creator out of nothing. I mean, it begins with the supernatural. And Orthodox Christianity acknowledges the continuing reality of God's intervening work in our lives. God is active. If, as a Christian, you haven't yet been converted out of your anti-supernaturalism, you will have to tear an awful lot of pages out of your Bible. Like uh, who was the the uh, Franklin, the American president? Was it Franklin? One of them who who just he took out all the miracles and stuff and all the bits that he didn't like. I mean, if if you haven't You've been converted to Christ, but if you haven't been converted out of your anti-supernaturalism, if, it's, if you're still trying to kind of strong arm the Christian faith into a kind of naturalism, you're going to have to tear a ton of pages out of the Bible. In fact, reading the Bible is going to be a real problem to you. You'll have to be very selective about what you do and don't, because some of it will just strike you as really strange. I think that's true. Or or you'll have to argue that not all Scripture is inspired by God and not all of it is profitable for teaching, reproof, or training in righteousness. Conversion to Christ means fully accepting His Word and His Spirit. Conversion to Christ means conversion to the triune God. Father, Son... And Holy Spirit, this is not peripheral stuff, this is is central stuff. Now, supernatural isn't a perfect word, of course it isn't, because it implies there's two systems. There's a natural system and there's a a supernatural system. You know, There's the natural world, the physical universe, and there's another place outside of that in which God, angels, and devils operate. But biblically, of course, God is always and constantly at work inside the system. In Him we live and breathe and move and have our being and so on. And he sustains it at every moment. But he is also free to act directly in an unusual way, as he wills, within that system. That's what a healing is. That's what a, a supernatural healing or a miracle actually is. So supernatural isn't the most accurate word, but it's as, as good as we have. And that's the one I'm, I'm using. And you know, you know, understand the sense in which I'm using it. C.S. Lewis said, Do not attempt to water Christianity down. There must be no pretense that you can have it with the supernatural left out. So far as I can see, Christianity is precisely the one religion from which the miraculous cannot be separated. You must, frankly, argue for supernaturalism from the very outset. Now, these things have always become key issues at, at times of religious fervor or revival when the Holy Spirit is poured out in power. And so suddenly, the supernatural kind of becomes more centrally... (laughs) either a problem or a facet or a feature of what's happening. Acts chapter 2, we read... Suddenly, a sound like the blowing of a violent wind... came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. They saw what seemed to be tongues of fire... ...that separated and came to rest on each of them. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit. These are all believers already, by the way, of course. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit... ...and began to speak in other tongues... ...as the Spirit enabled them. That's Acts chapter 2, verses 2 to 4. Now, that incident is often referred to by church historians... ...as the birth of the church. Across the board, everyone agrees... And isn't it interesting that at the birth of the church there was a mighty outpouring of the Holy Spirit and people speaking in tongues. Now, I don't think that's something to be ashamed of. Push that bit to the side there. Let it rather be a means of faith-filled curiosity to you. If you don't yet speak in tongues, rather than think, ooh, that's the... Weird No, this is the birth of the church. All church historians agree that the day of Pentecost was the birth of the church. So let it be a means of faith-filled curiosity for you. Lord, do I need more of this? Do I need more of this? And the day of Pentecost was obviously a fulfillment of John the Baptist's prophecy when he declared that I baptize you with repent with water for repentance. But after me comes one who's more powerful than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. He will baptize you with the Spirit, John the Baptist prophesied. And Jesus in Acts chapter 1 said, you will be baptized with the Spirit not many days from now. and, And you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. And you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria and the uttermost parts of the earth. So we believe that God still breaks in today. It's completely biblical, and it's absolutely evident through church history that he sometimes pours out his Holy Spirit on a, on a community. In fact, Martin Lloyd-Jones, the great Welsh... Do we have any Welsh people? Owen is a Welsh name, of course. David Martin Lloyd-Jones, the the Welsh preacher who preached in London for many years at the Westminster uh, Chapel believed that the definition of revival was was many people being baptized in the Holy Spirit at the same time that was his definition of, of revival and God at certain times has suddenly taken hold of his church I still believe that I'm still praying for that And God worked in surprising ways. There are times when God empowers His church and breaks the chains of sin, spreads the good news of Christ in kind of seemingly unstoppable ways and creates communities of believers that can honestly be described as the dwelling place of God in the Spirit. That's what God has done throughout church history. Now, following an amazing outpouring of the Holy Spirit in the North American town of Northampton in 1736, I'm taking you to Jonathan Edwards. Jonathan Edwards compiled a report of what happened, and he called it a narrative of surprising conversions. It's an absolutely fascinating document it's not a it's not a long book or difficult to read it's just the story of what happened and and you should read it if you're keen on that kind of thing let me quote from it he says this the work of conversion was carried on in a most astonishing manner souls did as it were come by flocks to Jesus Christ This work of God, as it was carried on, and the number of true saints multiplied, soon made a glorious alteration in the town. The town seemed to be full of the presence of God. I mean, because so many people were getting converted. Uh, It was never so full of love, nor of joy, and yet so full of distress as it was then. Our public assemblies were then beautiful. The congregation was alive in God's service. Everyone earnestly intent on the public worship. The assembly in general were from time to time in tears while the word of God was preached. Some weeping with sorrow and distress. Others with joy and love. Others with pity and concern for the souls of their neighbors. Those among us who had formerly been converted were greatly enlivened and renewed with fresh and extraordinary incomes of the Spirit of God, though some much more than others according to the measure of the gift of Christ. Many who before had labored under difficulties about their own condition had now their doubts removed by more satisfying experience and more clear discoveries of God's love. And finally, he says, by far the greater part of persons in this town had come to Christ. Amazing. These things are like dreams, aren't they? He describes an outpouring of the Spirit that caused people to respond strongly. And that surprisingly, this was an interesting thing, there were no requests for medical help. No requests for doctor's visits. For weeks at a time during the outpouring of the Spirit. you Go check it out. He was soon, uh, of course, called upon to defend his position. What are you saying? What are you talking about? And so he wrote a second pamphlet, which was called The Distinguishing Marks of a Work of the Spirit of God. And like Paul, and this is why I mention him, very like Paul in the, in the, in the letter to the Corinthians, he doesn't downgrade the work of God or the work of the Spirit that happened in people's lives. He doesn't distance himself from these things. His opening statements, I think, are a beautiful example of objective, reasonable, and biblically-based thinking. This is what he says. Listen to, to this. What the church has been used to is not a rule by which we are to judge, because there may be new and extraordinary works of God And he has previously worked in an extraordinary manner. He has brought to pass new things and has wrought in such a manner as to surprise both men and angels. And as God has done thus in times past, so we have no reason to think but that he will do so still. The Holy Spirit is sovereign... In his operation. And we know that he uses a great variety. And we cannot tell how great a variety he may use within the compass of the rules he himself has fixed. We ought not to limit God where he has not limited himself. That's powerful. We ought not to limit God where he has not limited himself. Come on. Let God be God. Let's be guided by God's word. Now, Edwards may have got other things wrong, but on these things, he was right. So as you enter this season, I didn't realize Doug was coming next week, so you're going to jump over next, I don't know what he's doing next week, but as you enter this this series on spiritual gifts, the reality of the power of the Holy Spirit, let's be receptive to God working in us. Hungry, thirsty for him, unashamedly so. We want to receive his spirit and the gifts he offers us. Who, do, who are we to say, oh no, I don't want the, your gifts, God. I mean, we're daft if we take that position. No, help me mature in my faith. Help me get it right, Lord. Our problem isn't the Corinthian problem tilting into overuse. Our problem is the other way, that we are moving ever away, incrementally away, from the work of the Holy Spirit in our day and generation. And I believe God's calling us back, because here it is in the Bible. In the Bible. So we want to receive His Spirit. And and, and as I say, perhaps in the revival that Edwards described, you know, the church have, may have been tilting towards an overemphasis on the effects of the Spirit, people falling down and all of that, happened in the Methodist revival, happened with Whitford, happened with Wesley, happened with uh, Edwards, happened with Howell Harris, and, and all the rest of them. Every revival, you talk about the Irish revivals, the Welsh revivals, the, you know, the coming of the Holy Spirit, there are varieties of effects. It, it affects people in different ways. Let's not be scared of, of that. But let's not, let's not over-tilt in the wrong direction. We're not even having that. We're not even experiencing that. Let's not start trying to balance away from what we're not even in. Yeah. Yeah. Terry Virgo wrote on Twitter recently, to accept that the gifts of the Holy Spirit are still available today, but not to seek them earnestly, is to devalue them and regard them as unnecessary or maybe simply a nuisance. This emphasis that I'm bringing you today and this emphasis that I'm pressing on you is not a call to craziness. It's actually a call back to biblical Christianity, I believe. and It's actually a call back to honoring God as God. I honestly believe that. Paul's exhortations in 1 Corinthians are an amazing example of apostolic wisdom. It would have been so easy for him to shut down these supernatural gifts, the tongues, the interpretation, the healings, the miracles, the prophecy, and to exalt preaching. He doesn't do that. He doesn't do that. Now, he preached until people fell asleep and pulled off the... Thing and then they had to, you know, pray for the guy to be healed. He doesn't reduce it all down to the, per- to the man at the front preaching. God forbid we get to there. No, 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 no. This is for the common good. Gifts are given to the body. There's different functions in the body. Read well, you'll, you'll get into all these chapters as well. Now, you may be on a journey of discovery about the person and work of the Holy Spirit, and amen. And that's good. Let me encourage you. Trust Him. Pray. Seek Him. Are you thirsty? One of the main problems of not preaching into these things are that people don't get a thirst for what they don't know is there. They don't get a... And if you don't think you need the Holy Spirit in a dynamic way, then you won't be thirsty. And if you're not thirsty... You could dry up. You can slowly dehydrate (laughs) spiritually without knowing it. And also, God loves people. And the coming of the Holy Spirit actually communicates His love to people. That's chapter 13. Because in the core of their being, what people really need is God. Father, Son, and yes, Holy Spirit. Amen? So maybe it's a prophetic word to you today. Maybe it's a—I don't know if it's a corrective. I don't—I don't know you as a church, but I'm—I'm I'm saying to you, come on, let's seek God in His Holy Spirit. Amen. Yeah, amen. What time do you finish, by the way? Somewhere between six and six fifteen. Oh, right. So I'm, I've been really short. Yeah. That's good. That doesn't often happen to me. <laughs> <laughs> do, you, do you have any questions?